to James chapter 1. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 17. Um, we have, uh, I, I, feel like it, I feel like I need to refresh where we are, because it's been a while since we've been here. I haven't been here, and I think this is the fourth Wednesday, or, or four Wednesdays I haven't been here, and we took a little uh, reprieve, obviously, for Christmas and things like that. So there needs to be a little bit of a refresher of where we're at. Um, basically, we're, we're looking at uh, a study of knowledge of God, of just coming to know who God is. And you remember that uh, Paul's prayer for the church at, at Ephesus is that they would grow more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Uh, it comes from chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at, the, at His right hand in the heavenly places. So there, there's a prayer that Paul uh, offers on behalf of the Ephesian church that they would grow more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, knowledge of, of Him. And so I feel like, I felt like even at the very beginning, as we kind of get used to Wednesday night and what our normal routine is on Wednesday night, that one of the most important things that we could do is attempt to really just look at what the Bible actually says about God himself and what we believe as Christians to be true. And that's going to lead us certainly in a lot of different directions. But the first thing that we talked about um, was God's word. And how do we know what we know was really the question. Before we can even really begin to start talking about all of the things that we know, we have to first lay the foundation of how do we know what we know. And we said that, that essentially we wouldn't know God at all unless He had revealed Himself to us. Unless He had intentionally chosen to reveal Himself to us, we wouldn't know a thing about Him. We'd be in the dark. And so, how does God reveal Himself to us? How did we say God reveals Himself to us? It's up on the screen. <laughs> yeah, through His Word. Bro broadly speaking, through His Word. The Word of God has come to us. He has told us about Himself. And how has He told us about Himself? What is the Word of God? Well, first, it, it really means about four things as you trace it through Scripture. First, it, it, it at least has to mean that He has orally spoken about Himself. There are times in Scripture where God speaks out of the clouds. We see this in Exodus when He actually speaks to Moses out of the cloud. When uh, he, he, we'll see next week, this coming Sunday, when we, when He baptizes, when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, there is a voice from heaven that speaks. This is my beloved Son. On the Mount of Transfiguration, He says, "This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him." Right? There, there are several times throughout Scripture where He speaks orally to His people, straight from His own mouth. All right. Now, we don't know exactly all the ways he talked to Moses, whether there was some, something that Moses understood about God in his heart and that God spoke to him that way and he delivered that message to the people, or whether he spoke orally or a mixture of the two. We're not totally sure on all accounts, but we know at least he has spoken orally throughout time to his people. Second, he has spoken through his prophets. 
He has told the Old Testament prophets, I will put my words in your mouth so that you can then turn around and say to the people, thus says the Lord. So what the prophets are speaking are not their own words. They're speaking the words of God, the literal, actual words of God. It's the only reason they have truth to them. All right. Then obviously, what's another way the word of God has come to us? In the person of Jesus Christ. He is the physical manifestation of the Word of God. Everything He said and did was essentially straight from the mouth of God. He is God in the flesh, the God-man Jesus. John describes Him as the Word of God. Um, So, there's Jesus. And the last is the Bible. What we have now, not only do we call the Word of God, but we trace through um, the development of Scripture and how we can be confident that what we have in front of us is the very words of God recorded on the pages of our Bibles that we can uh, read and that will continue to speak to us. Now, we said back then, and and I probably need to to clarify or refresh our memory and also answer some questions that have come up uh, since then, you can take this not far enough, and you can take this too far, all right? Um, You can take it uh, too far when you say God uh, doesn't nudge us or convict us or move us or push us in certain directions. He only speaks to us this way. We never get any confirmation of this is the way that I need to go. I'm convinced of this. The Lord has given me a peace about this. You can go too far if you said that never happens to us. Only the Bible there is clearly in our lives, I think each one of us probably have those, those times where we have a, as Paul calls it, a peace that surpasses or passes all understanding, right? Where we know, we're convinced in our heart, this is the way the Lord wants us to go. There's a, a peace that comes with that kind of decision. Of course, the Lord, through His Spirit, nudges us in certain directions. But you don't take it far enough when you say, I can sit here with my Bible closed I can close my eyes, I can hear from the Lord, and then I can go deliver that to a room full of people and say, this is what the Lord told me privately in my study. That becomes heavily problematic because every person I've ever heard do do that, I can actually turn to pages in Scripture that that contradicts that message that they received in their private study time. uh, What we're saying is about the Word of God that this is the authoritative way that God has communicated His truth to us is in this book. And what we'll find is, as we make this more a central part of our everyday life, those times where we're faced with a decision, the nudge that comes is from the pages of Scripture. We begin to learn how to apply the text in situations that we find ourselves in, and we recall God doing this in history or God moving people in this direction. So we do likewise because our, our lives are governed by the text. This is uh, God's revelation of truth to us. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Um, so we, talk, we develop the, the Word of God. This is the Word of God. This is how we know uh, truth. This is how we know what God has revealed to us because He has given to us His Word. Um, And then we moved on into actually knowing who God is. And really, uh, we're in the middle of studying the character of God, what we know to be true about God himself, how he has revealed himself in his word. And there's basically two broad categories that we've looked at. First, 
the incommunicable attributes of God, which are what? Not what exactly they are, but what is the definition of an incommunicable attribute? That's right. There is things that are true of God that he does not share with anyone else. What would be an example of an incommunicable attribute? What's that? He's omniscient, which means is a fancy word for what? He is all-knowing. He knows every single thing. He is omniscient. There will never be a point where we will know all things. All right? What's another example of an incommunicable attribute of God? He's omnipresent. He is in all places. All right? Any other examples of an incommunicable attribute? Some ones we had... What's that? He is all-powerful, all right? There are a few other ones that we covered as well. He is completely independent. He does not need anyone or anything for any reason. He is completely and totally independent. That will never be said of you and me. We will always be dependent on at least him, but we are often dependent on so many other things as well. Uh, he is completely independent. He is immutable, which is a fancy word for what? Unchanging. He is unchanging. He is the only being that is unchanging and will always be unchanging. Um, he is eternal, meaning he had no beginning and no end. Now, we said when we talked about these that there are some small pieces of these that we can understand, maybe because we can relate to in some way, especially when it comes to like eternality, let's say. We think of eternality and we go, well, I get eternal life, don't I? Don't I have eternal life? How is that different than God's eternality? Yeah, he has, he has always been, whereas we have a beginning. So really, it's more, probably more proper that we would say we have everlasting life. Right, then it would be necessarily to say eternal life. We use them as interchangeable terms sometimes. There's omnipresence. And, and unity. What does unity mean? God is unified. What does unity speak about? Remember? Well, when he, when he presents himself, let's say he presents himself in wrath. That doesn't mean that he uses his wrath at the expense of his mercy or his grace. All characteristics of God are unified in him, and they were always present at every, uh, every moment, right? You, you can't say, well, God has put away his, his mercy, and he has brought forth his, his wrath. He is both merciful and wrathful at the same time, uh, always and ever. Yeah, not true of us. Um, so now we're moving into uh, uh, a, uh, the communicable attributes of God where I want to spend a little bit more time on the communicable attributes. We'll talk about these for a few weeks, and then we'll move into um, the Trinity. But before we do all that, I want to take a second to just read a couple of verses out of James. And there's a reason why we're going to do this. I want to do a little exercise first before we get into the communicable attributes, what we can cover tonight. Um, James 1, starting verse 17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So tell me, just uh, if you can, as you think about that for a second, 
What are some gifts that the Lord has given to you for which you can be thankful? Children? Individual? Individual, yeah. Children, I heard. Presence of His Spirit. A spouse? Okay. What else? Jobs? Food on your table. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All the guys didn't want to say it, but <laughs> it's what we're thinking. Food. Yeah. Salvation. It's amazing. Relationships. Relationships. The Bible. Yes, we dare say health. I mean, in the flu season? You kidding me? Uh, anybody that's here and making it is to be thankful for those things. Mm-hmm. Yes. What did you say? Church? Church? Yeah. Anything else for which you're thankful? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of things, but... Yeah. It is interesting. I think if we did this uh, in any room with any group of people myself included, uh, I think what we would find is that the things that we're most thankful for typically break down into usually about two categories. Now, I heard some that don't fit into those categories, but for the most part, they break down into two categories of health and wealth, right? Um, that, and, and that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I'm not saying that like the prosperity gospel says that. <laughs> I'm not saying that as a bad thing at all. In fact, uh, health and prosperity are definitely gifts from the Lord. For sure. Without a doubt. However, I think most of the times we're trained to think mostly in those two categories. I am healthy and prosperous. And for these things, I am thankful. Now, when we talk about the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God, it's not lost on me typically boring that can be, right? I understand that. For the general population that, just, that is used to kind of coming to church and, and reading their Bible maybe even on a regular basis, thinking in these kinds of categories is not something that we're used to, and it's often like, okay, what are we doing? We're just learning the facts about God. Isn't this just the facts about God? Aren't we just, you're just telling us what the basic gist of who God is, is? Okay, let's get to some more stuff that's a little bit more controversial. Let's talk about the end times for once, all right? Let's talk about uh, some things that'll stir up some controversy, maybe some debate, keep people interested a little bit. Because we think about the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God as just simply the facts of, of who God is. But if you look at what James is saying, in this passage, he, he reminds his audience, these Jewish people that have been dispersed abroad, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And in our minds, we go, yeah, like houses and our kids and our, our health and our safety and our well-being, they're good gifts and they're from above. But those aren't the gifts that James has listed in chapter 1. Look at the gifts that James has listed in chapter 1. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. 
take a step back for just a second. Wait, what? Trials? That's not what I expected to see there. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when he gives you a promotion. That's what I expected to see there. Trials? No, that's not, that's not right. Why should I consider it joy when I experience trials? Why? What does it produce? Steadfastness. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God. Why? Because God what? Gives liberally and without reproach. Gives to all. But you must ask in faith without any doubting. The one who doubts is like uh, sea driven and tossed by the wind. Right? Then he says what? In verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in what? Another way of saying, consider it all joy, you poor people, in your exaltation, right? Wait, I'm poor. How am I exalted? Rejoice in my poverty? And then the rich man boasts in what? In his humility. Wait a second. This seems really backwards. All the things that James is listing, things like steadfastness, humility, uh, uh, exaltation that, that comes from God or poverty, if you, if you will, being poor in spirit, I think is probably what he means. Uh, the trials that I go through, the steadfastness that comes from those trials. I bet you'll never guess what category those fall under. Those are part of the communicable attributes of God. See, God is the one that's distributing these to the people, right? Through the trials, he's giving to them Steadfastness. He's giving to them wisdom through their asking. He's giving to them a humble heart. When we think about the communicable attributes of God, we need to think about the things that God possesses. He has a monopoly on all these things. They are all His. But He has chosen to share them with us. That's why it's important. It's not simply the facts about who God is. These are the things that God has chosen in His divine wisdom and sovereignty to share with us. We could be a dog in the dark completely, and yet He has chosen to give us some of this. And what it means to grow to know him more is to gain more of them, right? To gain more wisdom, to gain more steadfastness, to gain more humility. That's what it means, right? So I was always confused by this question when I was a kid or even when I was an adult. People would ask, or I would hear like these kind of lofty preachers or theologians or whatever ask the question, do you desire God or do you desire his gifts? I didn't understand that. 
Do I desire God or do I desire his gifts? What does that mean? Do I desire God or do I desire his gifts? Do you just want what God will give you? I think at the end of the day, what that question is designed to really get us to think is, am I pursuing God? Am I going after God because he gives to me health and wealth and prosperity? These tangible gifts that I can see. Well, it's clear that all of us have that natural tendency, right? When we start talking about the ways God has blessed us, what comes to mind? Health, wealth, and prosperity. So we're all conditioned to think in those terms. God has given us those gifts. I can see them, I can touch them, I can taste them, I can feel them. Here they are in front of me, spread out across my table. I can walk in my front door. All of these things He has given to me, I can see them. They're ever before me. And so when I look at them, I think, wow, how much God has blessed me. Let me pursue Him so that He gives me more. That's part of the attraction of the prosperity gospel. Is that they're telling people how you can get more of these things that you can taste, touch, and see. But as we come to know God more, what does he give to us? Steadfastness. Wisdom. Humility. It's different. Right? I can't taste humility. (laughs) I can't see it. And because I can't see it, I don't really know how valuable it is. How can I place a dollar figure on humility? It's interesting. Do you desire God or do you desire his gifts? I think studying the communicable attributes of God, the things that he shares with us, helps us to understand what is it that we're after. What's our goal? And as a Christian, what am I, what, what am I pursuing? What am I going after? So we're going to talk about some of these gifts. When you look at how the Bible thinks about a prophet, or maybe you should say prosperity, true prosperity, you'll find this a lot in the Proverbs. Things like this. Proverbs 19.1, Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. Take my instruction, that's Proverbs 19.22, take my instruction and not silver, and knowledge rather than choicest gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her, Proverbs 8.10-11. What does the author of Proverbs prize more than anything? wisdom. In fact, if you and I were sitting here going, and maybe we didn't have the Christian worldview, maybe we didn't have the Bible, maybe we were just left in the dark, what would we naturally think was better, wisdom or tons of money? <laughs> just look at the world. I mean, you don't, have to, you don't have to guess. Tons of money. In spite of the fact that every single rich person you'll hear on TV, including just Last week, I heard this from the the great American philosopher, Jay-Z. Don't know if you've ever heard of him. 
a brilliant theologian uh, and, and philosopher, said money doesn't buy happiness. Money doesn't make you happy. In fact, I've heard that same phrase. He didn't invent that. He didn't come up with that phrase all his own. I've heard that same phrase from the richest people around the world. And yet, in spite of them telling people over and over, hey, I've made billions and money doesn't buy happiness, what is everybody pursuing? Right. Nobody's pursuing wisdom. All right. They're just, they're just not. Okay. Uh, they're, they're after wealth. And yet the author of Proverbs is telling us it would be better to be poor and be wise than to be a fool and have all the money in the world. Right? Wisdom is more valuable than anything. The communicable attributes of God, you might say. When we talk about the communicable attributes of God, we're breaking them down into at least four categories, four broad categories. And we're going to go through these categories on the, through the next couple of weeks. Uh, the first are attributes of God's being that he shares in part with us. Um, the second is mental attributes. The third, moral attributes. And then there is attributes of purpose. There's a fifth category that's just miscellaneous attributes that we don't know how to categorize, but we'll talk about that uh, when we get there. So the first thing that I want to look at is just attributes of God's being. And I want to turn to a couple of, um, a couple of passages here. So let's go through and, and somebody take these. John 4, 24. Who wants it? All right, David Maxwell. Psalm 139, 7 to 10. All right, Vicki Thomason. Um, 1 Kings 8, 27. All right, Richard Thomason. When you have those, go ahead and read those and listen for the key kind of theme that unites them all together. Right. Psalm one thirty nine seven through ten. Where can I go from thy spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold. David, John 4, All right, now there's one thing that's going to unite all of those things together, but there's some, there's some obviously some other things about those too. So John 4, 24, God is spirit. Yours, Vicki, where can I go from... Where can I go from your, your presence, from your presence? Okay. And he says, wherever I go, your spirit is with me. Go ahead. Can't contain him. Okay. So what do you see about God there? What is it saying about God there, who he is? A communicable attribute that's communicated in those settings. Any, any thoughts? David said it right out of the gate. God is spirit, right? God's um, spirituality is a communicable attribute of his to us. We know about God. He has communicated in his word that he is spirit. Now, part of what we see in a couple of these passages 
is that God is omnipresent, right? He is everywhere. One of the reasons that He is omnipresent is because He is spirit, right? We don't see about Jesus that while He's walking on the earth in embodied, that He is omnipresent. God the Father is omnipresent because He is spirit. He is everywhere. Nothing can contain Him, in other words. In other words, what does it mean that God is spirit? His spirituality. God exists as a being that is not made of any matter, has no parts or dimensions, is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses, and is more excellent than any other kind of existence. God is spirit. How is that a communicable attribute? Yes. He shares that with us. How? Thoughts? What's that? How do you know? <laughs> Somebody else said that. <laughs> <laughs> she said we are spiritual beings. How do you know? Let's take some of these. Philippians 3, 3. Who wants to take that? Not everybody all at once. Blake, we want to take that? 1 Corinthians 6, 17. All right, Anne. Romans 8, 16. All right, Stephen. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 7. All right, Jeannie. Philippians 3, 3, when you got it, Blake. First Corinthians six seventeen. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Romans eight sixteen. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Ecclesiastes twelve seven. All right. What does that say about us as people? What do those passages say about us as people? That we're spiritual beings. So he has told us, he has affirmed what Vicky has already said. Your instincts were right. But I just didn't know the answer. That's okay. Your instincts were exactly right. We are spiritual beings. You knew that somewhere. All right. We found those places. We are spiritual beings. He has given, and what, for what purpose has he given us a spirit? To commune with Him. So, once again, the Spirit that He gave to us is His. It belongs to Him. And He has given it to us. For what purpose? To worship. Isn't that amazing? For just a second, isn't that amazing? He could have made us dogs that just walk around, never contemplating life, never thinking about what to worship, and one day we die. That may be crushing to anybody who thought, all dogs go to heaven. <laughs> and one day we die in the dark, and nobody knows we ever died, and that's just the end of it. Right? He could have done that. But he didn't. He gave to us a spirit 
for the purpose of communion with him, for the purpose of worship. Otherwise, we wouldn't know a thing about him. Yet we do because he has given us his spirit. Keep in mind, belongs to him, yet again, he gives to us a spirit. Now, he's given how many people of the spirit? Just Christians? No. Who has he given the spirit to? Every man, woman, and child on the face of this planet. He has given a spirit. Okay. But do they all turn and worship him? Some still walk in darkness. Explain that to me. How's that work? Right. In spite of the fact that not all turn and worship him, he has still given all a spirit. It's part of the reason that we are without excuse, right? Paul makes that that argument. They, they can see, they can perceive, they know, and so therefore they are without excuse who say there is no God, who walk on in ignorance. Yet he has given to every single person, every man, woman, and child, a spirit for the purpose of worshiping him, whether or not they turn to worship him or not. Right? Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. Um, comment on the difference between those two? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, certainly all of us would have a spirit. Not all of us would have the communication from the Holy Spirit do, taking up residence inside of us. Um, distinction between the two would be one is God himself, the third person of the Trinity. The other is born in every single one of us is given to every single one of us uh, from him. Um, so we would say the initial spirit is given by God it is not of God. Uh, is not of God? I would say it would have to be of God if it was given by him. And that's just a, yeah. Um, it, it, wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't be itself divine. I guess is, is the way of saying that, yeah. Uh, what is dwelling inside of us, the Holy Spirit, is the third person of the Trinity, is um, uh, God the Holy Spirit, I guess you would say. So there would be a tremendous distinction there. Um, but essentially what is born in us is a natural uh, instinct, I guess you would say, to, to, to worship, to give and to worship, to know who he is. Um, and it is, it is the way in which... He communicates that we are his children, uh, is through our spirit, from his spirit to our spirit. I guess that would make sense. Of well, yes. <laughs> um, it, would be to, it would be to worship him. Uh, I think it leads to worship. Um, and I think a lot of people try to fill that in, in various ways, generically. But uh, it, it is, it is, it's natural end, it's, 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 it's natural end is to worship him. Right. 
I think that would be true of even people that uh, hear and reject or, you know, maybe at once time would call themselves a Christian and now are, are, are far beyond. You will still find that they're worshiping uh, various things. So, yeah. A dog would not. Right. That's right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. God is spirit. We are, uh, he shares that with us. It's a communicable attribute. One more and then we'll, we'll go. Let's move into a, a, another category of mental attributes of God. Uh, somebody take Job 37, 16. Who will take Job 37, 16? Richard, First uh, John 3, 20. Mike Porter, you want First John 3, 20? First uh, Corinthians 2, 10 to 11. Jeremy Hoggle, First Corinthians 2, 10 to 11. All right, Job 37, 16. Richard, what do you got? Do you know the balancing of the clouds, the perfect works of him who is perfect in knowledge? First John 3.20. Mike, Erica. Erica, you passed it off to your better half. <laughs> God is greater than our heart and knows all things. First Corinthians 2.10-11. What is what is it? What are these talking about? These pointing to. Yeah, God's knowledge. God's knowledge. How do we define God's knowledge? God fully knows Himself. All right, that's a feat in and of itself. He fully knows Himself. All right, and all things actual and possible. Just. Wrap your head around all of those things, all of the pieces of that definition for just a second. He fully knows himself, and he knows all things actual and possible. Let's dive into a couple of those real quick. Who wants to take Hebrews 4.13? Jeannie, you want to take that? All right. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. David, you want to take that? All right. Matthew 6, 8. All right, Vicki. Matthew 10, 30. All right. Uh, Erica, you want to take that? And uh, where am I at? Psalm 139, 1 to 2, 4, and 16. Margaret, do you want to take those? Psalm 139, uh, 1 to 2, 4, and 16. A whole slew of them. All right. We're going to just dive into all God knows. All right. Hebrews 4, 13. Who has that? All right, Jeannie. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked in the earth and under the eyes of him with whom we must be. All things are naked and open to him. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. Who has that? Matthew 6, 8. Uh, therefore, 
Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Ha. Declares in from beginning, knows former things and things yet to come, knows what you need before you even ask him. Matthew 10, 30. Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Psalm 139, 1 to 2, 4 and 16. So when we say God knows all things actual, we mean all things that are coming to be, that have already been, and currently now are. Even down to the hairs on your head. How many socks are in your drawer where that missing sock went long ago? He knows that too. <laughs> the number of grains of sand on every shore. The number of water molecules in the ocean. He knows everything. That's incredible. That's an incredible thought. Just to think about that for a second. He knows everything actual that currently now is. But that's not all. Somebody read 1 Samuel 23, 11 to 13. Lori Beams, you want that? <laughs> Matthew eleven twenty-one 21 to 23. Stephen Simmons, you want that one? Go ahead. Or I hate to give you a first Samuel and then go, there's only two, you gotta read it now. <laughs> 23, 11 to 13. This one's interesting. Pay close attention to what happens here in this scene. This is David talking to the Lord. He's running from Saul. Listen. Okay, so what is David asking of God? Yeah, yeah. If I stay here, will this happen? Will Saul get me? Will these people turn me over? If I stay here, will, will this happen? And what does the Lord say? Yep, it will happen. So what does he do? He leaves. And Saul gives up, right? So God, oh, sorry, before we get into that, Matthew eleven twenty one to 23. Stephen. Down to 
Okay, so Jesus is saying that if these works had been done in Sodom, in Chorazin, in uh, Sidon, if these had been done back then, they would have repented. What does he know? He knows all things possible. So this is not even knowledge of things that are going to happen. This is knowledge of things that could possibly happen, of of. That's a lot of knowledge, okay? Not just all things that are actually taking place at this very moment, but all things that could ever potentially take place are all within his mind. So all things actual, all things possible. Two more. Jeremiah 731. Got it? What is it? Oh, no, sorry. Psalm 139.6. My bad. Go ahead, Jeremy. Isaiah 55, 9. Go ahead, Ann. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So let's sum that up. So he knows all things actual that are happening right now, or that, and all things possible, all things that could potentially happen, and then let's put those in the category of a whole bunch of other stuff that we could never even think about. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that we would never even come close to knowing that he knows. Now, um, a couple of objections. Uh, stay in, uh, is in Jeremiah. Is anybody in Jeremiah already? Jeremiah 731. Somebody has a, a digital Bible? This is it, and then we'll close up. 731. Anybody want to take that? Richard, you've already buttoned your stuff up, man. Yeah, I got gotcha. And you want to take Jeremiah 731? Lori, Jeremiah 19, 4 to 5. Jeremiah 19, 4 to 5. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned sacrifices in it to gods that neither they nor their fathers nor their kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons and the fire as offered to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. Now, what does that sound like? Sounds like he didn't know, right? It didn't come into my mind. Well, how do we explain that? We just read a whole slew of things that says God knows all things actual, knows all things possible. So those are going to fall into one of those two categories, either the things that are actual or possible. He knows a whole bunch of other things that we could never even wrap our mind around or begin to know. And yet here is something he says, these never came into my mind. What? Yeah. Yeah. 
I, it's, it's rightly translated, so it, it, it should be probably mind, but it's just an ambiguous term that can mean heart, it can mean mind, it can mean lots of different things. The point that it's getting at is not that he didn't know it, that he didn't think about it, or that it wasn't something that he could see from afar, it's something that he would never purpose. Right? It, it would never be a part of his intentions or thought processes. It's not that he didn't know of it. It's that it would never, we would probably say it better, it would never come into his heart. Right? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Blow our little pea brains. Right, Blake. can lose all meaning because you force it to do something that it wasn't originally intended to do, right? Yeah, happens a lot in the Bible. <laughs> but just like his spirituality, we put on these, uh, they call them anthropomorphisms. They're just, they're just things that we would say about God that we, we know aren't true. Like we just talked about God as a spiritual being, and yet the Bible says that Jesus goes and he is now sitting at what? His right hand. He's a spiritual being. He doesn't have a right hand. But what does that mean? What does that phrase mean? Sitting at someone's right hand. You're ruling. You're reigning. You're the authority. If you look at the context of those passages, that's exactly what it's talking about when it, in regards to Jesus sitting at God's right hand. So here are um, some communicable attributes. We've only talked about two of them. We'll continue to talk about some of the rest of them uh, as, as time goes on. But I hope what you're beginning to see is not simply these are facts about who God is, but that these are things that we are actually striving for as Christians. When it comes to knowledge, when it comes to, to our own spiritual, we might say spiritual well-being, the source of all of that is God the Father. That we turn to Him in worship. He has communicated all of this and has made it possible through His Son, Jesus Christ, dying on our behalf. And it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able even to do that. These are attributes that not only God has, but that He shares with us so that we can come to Him in worship. So for all of the things that we have in life, health, wealth, and prosperity. We're sitting in the middle of America and traveling around the world even for a second, even other first world countries. You'll see we have it made. Everything is handed to us. It's natural for us to think in just categories of health and wealth of the things that God has given to us. But I think if we take a biblical approach to the things that God has given us, for sure we should be thankful for all of those things as well. But 
what probably should make its way to the forefront of our mind and come out of our mouths first. He's given me wisdom to be able to make decisions, to discern. He's given me a spirit to worship him. He's given me knowledge, knowledge of him. Something that Paul prays that the Ephesians would have, that they would grow more and more in knowledge of him, that he would give that to them for the purpose of their discovery of him. That's an incredible gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a time to to just discuss, to read scripture, to think deeply about who you are and who you have made us to be. I pray, Lord, that gradually over time the truths of your word would set in on our heart and that it would begin to grow. Out of our growth in the knowledge of you would come rivers of life spilling over into this community. The words that just naturally pour out of our mouths would be words that are edifying to others. Words that would bring them to a knowledge of the truth. Pray that you would make in us a people that lead others to worship, that disciple others into the knowledge of you, that, that um, seek only to glorify your name in and around the community of Tuscaloosa. We're grateful for all that you have disclosed to us in your complete freedom. You have revealed to us your truth that we may worship you. We're grateful for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.